Hi, everyone. Mike Vinoy, Vice President of Marketing with Assure Software. Uh, got an interesting topic today. So uh, during the pandemic, so many employers had to send their workforce home, right? Um, and clearly, there's been a continuum to work from home, flex work that's been going on for a couple of decades, right? Um, but the pandemic, uh, not only did it just simply accelerate a trend, there was a, it was an overnight shift where, okay, we, ha we legally had to work from home in many cases. Uh, what's happened since, however, uh, th that is catching some employers a little flat-footed is not realizing the compliance impacts of those employees working from home. So uh, if, if I, uh, in my hometown of St. Louis, if there's an employer uh, downtown, uh, I got people coming from the Missouri side, I've got workers coming across the river to, uh, from the Illinois side, but the work is being performed in an office downtown, uh, no big deal, right? But when those people go home, uh, what are the differences in, 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 what are the legal requirements for say overtime? What are the legal uh, requirements for uh, taxation if uh, employees are actually performing the work in Illinois on my behalf instead of performing the work in my office in Missouri? Uh, so there's all kinds of compliance and tax impacts of employees uh, working remotely. Uh, it, 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 and I think there's a lot of employers just haven't really thought about this before because they didn't have to, right? Maybe. Maybe the majority of their workforce worked from one location uh, and the pandemic changed that. Maybe it's just the tight labor market that I'm, I'm uh, open now to uh, hiring employees who work flexibly. Maybe I have an employee who says, hey, I'm going to spend the summer in my RV. I promise I'm going to have, uh, have good Wi-Fi. Uh, is that okay, boss? And we think, huh, what the heck, as long as they do the work. But where they perform work actually matters in the eyes of the law. So uh, we're not giving guidance to say no to those things, but we are saying eyes wide open. Uh, some of these decisions have probably some unforeseen, unintended consequences. So to help me unpack this really complex topic, uh, Brian Schenker from Jackson Lewis. Uh, Brian is a regular guest in the show. He practices law for uh, Jackson Lewis. He's got extensive experience defending class action and collective uh, uh, action lawsuits under federal and state wage and hour laws. Uh, he's successfully defended wage and hour audits conducted by the U.S. and New York State Departments of Labor, and he regularly handles cases before courts and administrative agencies involving claims of discrimination, sexual harassment, and retaliation. So, very well qualified. Always enjoy talking to you, Brian. Welcome. Thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, wage and hour compliance is really an area employers can't avoid and should really be proactive. Uh, and so I, I think a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about today, you know, maybe things that have been overlooked, but certainly uh, if they have, you know, time to take a look at these things. Yeah, very good. All right. So normally when you and I are kind of unpacking a complex topic, we'll talk about the, the legalities of it all. We kind of then end with maybe the sticks and, hey, this is why you need to pay attention. Uh, we're kind of reversing the order today. Uh, the, the, the stick is really important here because the, the potential consequences of doing it wrong, even if by accident, are pretty stiff. Can, can you speak into that, please? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, employers that, you know, don't set and enforce policies, uh, you know, including, you know, where and when non-exempt employees might work, uh, may be able to work, you know, this can lead to, you know, substantial exposure, even, you know, class action uh, exposure. So, you know, this is one area, the uh, wage and hour context that, you know, substantial compliance 
is is not a defense. You know, uh, small or technical violations in this area uh, can lead to you know massive exposures. So uh, something that again, you know, companies need to be aware of these issues. Uh, and you know, look, when we're talking about uh, you know minimum wage, you know, under under the FLSA. Uh, you know, right now, minimum wage is uh, $7.25 an hour, as we'll get to, you know, many states are above that. Uh, but, you know, failure to pay minimum wage, you know, that's going to be, uh, for instance, the difference between the rate that was paid and, and the full minimum wage. Uh, and, you know, that'll add up, uh, especially if they're, you know, multiple employees uh, subject to uh, those violations. Uh, you know, same thing with overtime. Uh, the general rule is that all employees are entitled to uh, you know time and a half for hours worked over 40 and failure to pay that rate or uh, maybe not to pay for all hours that work such as you know issues with off the clock work you know will result in a substantial overtime uh, you know money's being owed uh, so in these types of cases right you know they can recover their unpaid wages you know that that's the simple part right that, uh, you know, and, and again, we'll talk about there might be even, you know, uh, higher burdens under state law that uh, that could increase damages. Um, but, you know, one of the things here is, you know, that I often see in litigation is a dispute over hours. Uh, and so, you know, one of the things we talk about for damages is that if an employer doesn't have records, uh, an employee can come in and say, you know, they worked 70, 80 hours a week. Uh, it might not be reasonable. It might be far from reality. Uh, but without contemporaneous time records, uh, you know, the DOL, the courts will likely uh, accept uh, what the employee is saying unless there's specific evidence to the contrary. Uh, so, you know, in combating these, you know, potential penalties uh, and uh, wages owed, you know, time records are key. Uh, and, and that brings you to liquidated damages. This is uh, one of the things that uh, really, uh, I guess we could say, hits employers over the head, right? Uh, in addition to unpaid wages under the uh, Fair Labor Standards Act, employees will recover 100% of those unpaid wages as liquidated damages. So you know, $10,000 in, uh, in unpaid wages becomes uh, $20,000. Uh, and you know, liquidated damages are the norm uh, they are not the exception. You know, the rationale for this is that, uh, you know, uh, wages alone, you know, back wages alone are, are insufficient to make that employee whole uh, for having to wait so long to, to get paid, uh, you know, their, their lawfully, uh, lawful wages. Uh, and so, you know, I can give you an example from my practice. You know, there's a very, very limited uh, exception to uh, liquidated damages when there is a violation. Uh, and that's essentially a good faith uh, defense. Uh, and it's not good faith as in, hey, I, I thought I was complying with the law. Um, you know, any, anyone can, can say that. But this is where, you know, a company has gone out and sought guidance. And, uh, you know, maybe it's legal guidance as to, you know, an exemption or how to pay people or, you know, HR professionals. And then there's subsequent reliance on, on that. So, you know, that may be a defense. I've had that before where, you know, in a case uh, where, you know, there was a dispute over an exemption, uh, you know, in the end, we had a, I think it was a 10-year-old fax uh, from, uh, 
you know, from a council to the company saying, you know, here's this decision. It looks like based on this, you know, you can pay according to this exemption. In the end, that might not have been the case, but that was a great defense to liquidated damages. So it just goes to show being proactive uh, doesn't just assist in you know compliance, but also on the back end if you're ever sued uh, for for these wages. And and Brian, I just want to point out maybe for for small employers, so many times you got a you got a small growing business that. Uh, you know, it, it's maybe uh, an overused term, but you know, the, the, the employees, they're like, they're like family, right? We've worked together for a long time. We all know each other really well. Um, and all this, all this record keeping, all this uh, precision sounds very legalistic and doesn't sound like it's part of our culture. And hey, I'm not worried about it. But, it, but in, the, in, the, in the face of a pandemic or there's, or there's major changes, that employee who works in your place of business, maybe it's an office, maybe it's a warehouse, Maybe it's a retail uh, uh, facility, but you're face to face. You're talking through things. It's kind of just generally known when the person shows up and when they leave and when they work. But if that person all of a sudden is working from home, uh, just think about the, the the life pressures that have happened to people during the pandemic, whether it's childcare, whether it's elder care, whether it's being sick and medical bills and inflation, uh, and, and you lack that face to face connection with people, they may be working more hours than you even know. They may be thinking they work more hours than they actually are, um, but they have this feeling of resentment or uh, uh, frustration that can build up it in, in relationships that you think uh, are, are solid and you don't have to really worry about this stuff. All of a sudden, all it takes is one. And maybe it's the frustrated spouse of your employee who's saying, hey, you need to get paid for these extra hours you're working. And maybe it's the spouse who, who uh, uh, notifies the State Department of Labor. And, and now you're not just dealing with an employee, you're, you're dealing with an audit that goes back for five years to where you have to prove all your records. And, and this isn't just a, a one employee thing. This, this could be a really big, really expensive uh, consequence. Am I, am I overstating that? Not at all. If, if anything, that that's an understatement because a absolutely it, what, what you said, it just takes one. Uh, so, right. The, the two main enforcement, uh, you know, you know, mechanisms here are through private lawsuits where an employee hires an attorney or through, you know, Department of Labor enforcement. So like you mentioned, uh, you know, this can be through the U.S. DOL. They oversee the, uh, the FLSA or through a, a state you know, labor agency, which would uh, oversee you know, the, the state regulations. And right, you know, those can be initiated by you know, one employee complaint. Uh, you know, what we typically see is they're not just investigating that one employee's claim. The DOL is gonna come in, ask you for all your employees or maybe all everyone in that classification. Uh, right. So it's going to be you know, expansive. They're going to want records. They're gonna wanna see it right away. Uh, and so, right, you know, DOL, the DOL, I think, you know, the, the, the U.S. DOL, DOL alone, not, not even talking about state, state ones, they close about, you know, which means they settle uh, essentially about over 20,000 cases a year. Uh, you know, in the last five, six years, uh, I believe they've uh, recovered over a billion dollars for employees. And, and that's not even including liquidated damages. That's just the unpaid wage component. Uh, so the DOL uh, coming into your workplace, you know, I have clients all the time. They call me, 
I have a DOL investigator who just walked in. They're interviewing my employees and they've said I have a week to give them, you know, all these records and tax records. And they're entitled to do that. They, they can walk in and, you know, uh, start looking around and uh, talk to your employees. So, uh, you know, that that's a big risk uh, area. And then, you know, private uh, enforcement. Uh, the plaintiff's bar in this field is seems like it's ever growing and ever more active. Uh, and these range from, you know, one employee uh, lawsuit just on behalf of themselves through, you know, nationwide or statewide uh, class actions. So one employee can file a lawsuit uh, on behalf of all similarly situated employees. So that's why we say when, when you have a small compliance issue uh, in the wage and hour context for you know, one employee, understand that however many people you have in that classification, you know, that, that exposure grows exponentially. And all it takes is that one employee who's interested. And, and just to note, you know, in, in the private enforcement context in courts, these employees can recover their attorney's fees, which means if they prove that they have not been paid correctly, the company, you know, is going to be paying their attorney's fees. That's a huge amount of leverage that, you know, leads often to settlements where there's, uh, you know, issues with compliance. So, uh, you know, what we're going to get into to today, I would say pay attention, look into it yourself, seek out guidance, you know, from, you know, HR consultants like Assure or counsel if you need uh, because you know these these are not isolated issues. These can these can become hey, big. Hey, and Brad, I, I know we, I, we want to spend most of the time today talking about the actual things that employers need to be aware of, but uh, there, uh, there's another bucket here, right? So there's a uh, there's class action, Department of Labor, what I'd say wage and hour kind of stuff, but there's a mm-hmm. separate bucket around taxation, right? I mean. Uh, I'm assuming it's all, but maybe it's most states. Uh, yeah, so federal tax uh, is kind of blankets no matter where you're located as long as you work in the U.S. But uh, if I work half the time uh, on the Missouri side of St. Louis and half the time in the Illinois side of St. Louis, presumably state of Illinois and state of Missouri are going to want their taxes, right? So can you speak into the tax impact uh, when, it, when it comes to the penalties and consequences of doing this wrong? Sure, absolutely. So, and when you talk about taxes, you know, you know, we probably need to even break it down from there. There, you know, there are different tests for where an employer uh, might be subject to taxes, whether you're talking about, you know, unemployment and, and insurance. And, and, I'm gonna, and let's reserve getting into the details of what people need to know, but just speak to the con- consequence, because Department of Labor is the is the is the defense mechanism and enforcement. Uh, 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 it's who enforces wage and hour, and then you have the court system for class action or personal lawsuits, right? But the IRS has their own enforcement independent. Am I saying that right? Yeah, absolutely. So you're looking at the IRS, and often with these types of issues with remote employees and issues of where taxes should be paid, you're talking about their, their state taxation departments. And yeah, you know, companies who turn a blind eye to you know where their employees are actually working, uh, could very well be subject to uh, you know penalties for failure to pay taxes, um, you know late fee, you know late fee assessments for you know uh, late filings or not having paid things correctly. So uh, you know as we'll discuss, it, just ignoring these issues doesn't make them go away. 
and right, even outside of the wage and hour context, you know, taxes, you know, will very likely be owed to different states or withholdings will need to be made, uh, you know, uh, for different states, depending on where employees are. So, you know, there are certainly penalties uh, in, in that realm uh, that, that you'd be subject to for, uh, you know, for not filing, for instance, in, in a state where you have employees uh, performing work. So we kind of have, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to advance the conversation, but we're kind of talking about things today in two different buckets then, right? Bucket number one is wage and hour stuff around Department of Labor, Fed, uh, uh, Department of Labor, State. Uh, it's around overtime laws. It's around minimum uh, uh, minimum wage. Uh, maybe there's different classification issues for exempt versus non-exempt. There's all that wage and hour stuff. And then there's taxation. Uh, so, so I think that's what we're going to try to unpack in our conversation today. Let, let's do touch on some of the examples now we can never talk about every example that exists uh, uh even if we had it current yesterday it'd be changed today uh, but what are some of the big things that employers need to understand about the differences between federal and state regulations here right so when we look at it you know we're talking about you know the federal you know the flsa sets the floor and then we have some states that simply follow that and we have others that you know set higher standards, uh, and that can be you know minimum wage, salary levels for exempt employees, a, a number of things. So uh, you know I'll start with you know exemptions, right? So as I said before, all employees should be paid you know an hourly rate in overtime unless they fall into an exemption from overtime. Uh, now you know the salary threshold, which is the the amount you know the level of the salary, whether it's, you know, 50,000, 60,000, you know, that depends on the state. And, uh, you know, federally, uh, there is a, uh, the FLSA says that exempt employees need to be paid at least, uh, you know, a little over 35,000 per year on a salary basis. Uh, and there's some states that follow that, like Alabama. So let's say you're an employer in Alabama and you've got an exempt employee, you're paying them, you know, thirty-seven thousand. You're you're meeting the uh, the FLSA requirements, and then you know that employee wants to work remotely back from you know where they come, and that's out in California. And now you're uh, you're an employer in California with you know in the one to twenty-five employee category, and you know uh, exempt employees there need to be paid at least fifty-eight thousand and change uh, per year. So. You know, you have an issue if you keep that person exempt. You'd likely have to raise their salary up to you know up by you know twenty thousand or more. So uh, you know there are issues with the salary threshold, and depending on where an employee is working, you may have to change their exempt or non-exempt status, or you know raise their salary to comply. Um, I think that's a, I think Brian, that's an area where people just don't think. I, I so yeah. like common knowledge, say New York uh, State, New York City, California, they have their own uh, uh, overtime laws, right, that are more favorable to employees than the than FLSA, than the federal. Um, but a lot of people don't realize the, the minimum pay requirements of being an exempt employee in these states. And so uh, to understand, if, if you have a remote employee working in one of these states, it's not just whether you do or don't have overtime uh, and maybe they're exempt, you see them as an exempt employee 
and now they're working from home in one of these more uh, employer employee friendly states, uh, it could literally mean as much as like a 20 plus thousand dollar raise that you might have to give if you don't understand the impact of exempt versus non-exempt, not just whether you're paying overtime or not. Right. Right. And similarly, along with, you know, that there, there might be different rules for, you know, the duties test under certain exemptions that uh, that states apply. Uh, so, you know, you really need to look closely. You know, usually we say, right, you're exempt employees. You're generally safer in terms of compliance. You know, as long as you've classified them correctly, there, there aren't as many pitfalls as with non-exempt employees. But right. The threshold question is. When my, you know, not when my exempt employee goes to, you know, a different state, are they still exempt? Uh, and and the parallel is for non-exempt employees. You know, many states have higher minimum wages than the 725, uh, you know, federal minimum wage. You know, again, you know, California, New York would be great are great examples for that. Both are, uh, you know, over double uh, that amount. Uh, you know, so you need to be aware even for your non-exempt employees when they when they're you know working in a new location. What, you know, what are what's the minimum wage requirement there? Um, so you know, certainly you know uh, something like that. You know, uh, you might even have issues with you know places you know different locations within a state. Um, you know, not right. not not all states do that, but. <laughs> you know, we're picking on New York and California, I think, but, uh, you know, they, they are two of the very uh, employee friendly states. And depending on where an employee is working uh, within those states, you know, uh, a move from, you know, uh, upstate New York, you know, to, you know, New York City can trigger a higher uh, minimum wage level, you know, the same way in California, you know, moving from, uh, you know, say San Diego uh, where the minimum wage is around, I think, $14 to, you know, San Francisco, where it's, you know, uh, above $16, you, you know, you need to recognize, you know, how you might need to, you know, pay someone differently just by moving even within a state. Brian, let's, I, I think I, I alluded to it at the top of the discussion, and um, if you could kind of make it more clear for people. So, I think there's a spectrum, right? So like I've got an employee who has, we've had a, a a rather formal conversation. Hey, can I work from home? I want to work from home uh, or yeah, I'm gonna spend uh, Monday, Tuesdays in uh, uh, Thursdays in my home and that's a different state or, or, or whatnot. And that's kind of a pseudo permanent setup. I can research the local laws. I can understand the tax ramifications. Um, that's probably more black and white here, but what about the employee who just is a little bit flexible? It's maybe not super rigorous. Maybe the employee says, Hey, um, I was going to take PTO. I know this is a really crunch time for us. I'm going to work uh, on what was going to be my vacation. The kids will be at the beach, but I'm going to be online all day doing conference calls, but I'm going to be at the beach in a different state. How, 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 tight do employers need to really study this for work being performed in a different location uh you know for much smaller periods of time yeah so i think you know the you know generally i think you know if it's a vacation or some very you know a uh, short period of time 
uh, there's much less concern, you know, about these issues. That's likely, you know, if there's, you know, not an intention to, you know, stay there and it's really, like you said, um, a vacation, then, you know, we're likely, you know, not triggering uh, those states, right? You, you have an employee who's, you know, on a call, you know, a conference call and they're driving across country. No, we're not triggering different minimum wages as we uh, we go through each right. state. Um, you know, I think what we're talking about today is more, you know, someone relocating, right? That, you know, for the, you know, foreseeable future or for, you know, months, they're going to be in a location. So, you know, we're not so much concerned with very short-term issues. It's, you know, much more, you know, something that's, you know, indefinite or, or going to be for a substantial period of time. And, and then... Yeah, we have I, I want to give us concrete guidance as we can on this topic, even though I think by definition it's not super concrete. I, I'm just thinking back to uh, uh, a few years back, I had a, had some experience doing uh, payrolls for major league baseball teams, um, and there's a case where the states they want their money, they want their tax money, right? And so you got a baseball player who's making ten, twenty million dollars a year. Um, uh, and their contracts are spelled out on a per, uh, pay per game basis. Um, you can bet that a, a St. Louis Cardinal who might reside in in St. Louis, uh, uh, Illinois wants their taxes when they go play the Cubs, right? Uh, and, and that's on a per game, which is really a per day basis. So in most extreme cases, only because there's a lot of money to be had there, states will pursue this on the more micro time level, but is there any guidance we can give for the the average business that we should we should just be that we could give more concrete guidance here? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think the the safe route is really you know anything beyond a you know vacation time, right? When someone's on vacation, you know there there might be some work, but I think anything beyond that, you know, you need to start looking into this. There might be you know then you know state guidance, you know as to you know your state and where the potential work state is uh in terms of you know how much time or you know what is sufficient to trigger it but yeah i would say anything where someone is you know going somewhere specifically and that is going to be you know their place of work you know we're, we're talking about the, these issues vacations and Brian, the last thing maybe uh again alluded to it at the top of the hour um I believe in all cases, and I think it's safe to say all, um, the litmus test here is the location where work is performed, right? So the fact that uh, my employer, Assure, is headquartered in Austin, Texas, I don't, I reside and I work virtually uh, in St. Louis, um, therefore I'm taxed, uh, I have Missouri taxes, I have Missouri laws I must comply with, that my employer must comply with, uh, so uh, our guidance here is don't think of where your quote-unquote headquarters is or your main office that that uh, uh, maybe a satellite office that an employee is kind of attached to. It's literally where the work is performed when we think about virtual work. Am I, am I correct there? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's about that location where, where the work, the services are, are being provided. So again, that, you know, May or may not be that person's house that that might be you know somewhere else you know a rental house wherever it might be but right we're not saying you know 
you know, I'm sure, you know, sure we're located in Texas and Texas, we're going to uh, pay everyone, you know, according to Texas law. No, it's dependent on where that employee is located when performing the work. Okay. And maybe my last question to this, and this might sound just kind of nitty gritty, but um, so vacation doesn't count if, but if it's going to be ongoing working relationship, this is what we care about. What if an ongoing relationship is a traveling salesperson and by definition, their job takes them on the road. Would they would they be subject to be taxed in the states in which they are selling, or is it going to be just the state in which they say reside and work from is their home office? Excellent question, uh, and I think there are some you know particular issues for you know those outside sales, those outside commission salespeople. So right, I mean if they are performing. Uh, sales and you know getting business in other states yes that then we might be looking at those states for both wage and hour purposes as well as tax issues including maybe you know it could possibly be you know income you know tax uh, but also you know maybe even sales tax right uh, you might even be subject to you know filing filing uh, you know uh, corporately there and you know get authorized to do business in that state uh, if you're, uh, you know, having sales done in, in these various states, but and I think, you know, bring it back to wage and hour. One thing that I've seen arise during uh, the pandemic with commissioned uh, salespeople is that, right? These are typically, you know, your individuals that are exempt because they're doing outside sales. They're traveling. Uh, they're going to different customers, potential customers, and you know, during the pandemic, a lot of that changed where that commission salesperson may be working from home and they're doing you know zoom calls or you know, you know making uh you know conference calls all day instead of actually visiting uh customers and you know if we recall one of the main elements to that exemption is that uh they are customarily away from the employer's place of business now when they're working from home that that may become the employer's place of business and so if they're just, you know, taking all their calls from home and not going out in the field anymore, you know, there could be, uh, you know, a possibility of the uh, commission salesperson exemption, you know, no longer applying. Something to take a look at. A topic for another day, I think it's going to be interesting that over <laughs> this next three to five years, probably uh, where, quote unquote, inside sales reps are non-exempt, uh, outside sales reps are exempt. The lines between the di the difference between an inside and outside sales rep in the world of video conferencing um, uh, in pandemics and post pandemic, uh, I mean, people are doing million sales reps are doing million dollar deals all the time uh, without ever going on site. I, th these these two worlds are gonna are gonna collide are already colliding. It'll be interesting to see how this pans out over the next few years. Yeah, definitely. Well, all right, let's let's move on to some practical guidance. So, so how can employers reduce their risk in these areas? Sure. So, yeah, it, it sounds so simple, but, you know, the first thing I, I'd suggest is you need to know where your employees are working. Uh, you know, it's uh, it, it's not enough to just understand this concept of remote work. But, you know, when you have employees who are not working at an office, uh, you need, you know, the company needs to understand where they are working from. Uh, you know, I've seen various studies that 
uh, basically show that companies in HR overestimate that employees are telling them and keeping them apprised of where they're working from and that employees are much less often uh, actually telling their employers where they are working from. So, uh, you know, with that, you know, there should be policies, whether it's, you know, in the handbook or other uh, separate policies that, you know, require employees to inform the employer, uh, you know, where they are working from. And, you know, not just that, but, you know, in advance of, you know, changing their work location, uh, they might need to get permission from the company. Uh, so putting something in a handbook like that and enforcing that policy is probably you know the the first and most minimal step that a a company can take um because you know none of this we you can't ensure compliance with another state's wage and hour laws if you don't know that your employee is actually working there it's it, it's you know such a basic thing uh you know so there should be you know documentation of that we should know where people are working um and then again you know once the company knows where the employees are working uh, and has, you know, approved that, you know, that that work uh, location, you know, then it's on the company to, you know, study up on compliance in a new state, uh, you know, whether that's, you know, the tax issues or the wage and hour requirements. And again, a lot of what we're talking about today is, you know, minimum wage, overtime, but there are so many other uh, wage and hour issues uh, you know that uh, that may vary from state to state, such as you know record yeah, keeping. Give, give a couple of examples if you could. Yeah. So, uh, for instance, you know here in New York, when an employee is hired, uh, there's a notice of uh, wage rate and payday. A very simple form uh, to provide, and it needs to be provided within 10 days of the start of employment, or you know the start of working in New York State, we'd say. Uh, and you know, failure to provide that can you know lead to uh, penalties of up to five thousand dollars per employee. You know that that's massive exposure. Um, you know, so there there are certain notice requirements like that. Uh, there are also other you know other pay requirements. Uh, you know, while overtime is generally you know uh, a thing that's you know forty hours in a week. You know, after that, it's time and a half their their regular rate. But there are other states. Again, we'll pick on California, where you know there can even be a daily trigger for premium pay. Uh, you know, so you know, you, employers need to be aware of those you know unexpected uh, you know pay requirements. Um, and, and so you know, e and even outside of the wage and hour context, you know, I won't go into these things, but. Um, you know, there could be harassment, you know, sexual harassment and training requirements for employees in certain states. Uh, there are going to be, you know, we have the FMLA, which funny enough, if you ever get uh, audited by the US DOL for wage and hour issues, they will actually ask you about your FMLA policies and, and such as well. So we have, you know, the federal uh, FMLA, Family Medical Leave Act, but states have their own leave uh, laws. So having one employee might, you know, telecommuting from a, uh, a certain state might be enough to trigger leave requirements. Uh, another thing I can think of are, you know, non-compete and non-solicit agreements. Uh, you know, enforcement there varies, you know, based on, you know, state, you know, uh, laws or, you know, uh, court precedent as to, you know, what might be reasonable. So, 
you know, a non-competition agreement that you entered into, you know, that was, uh, you know, kosher in your state may run afoul of uh, the law in another state. So, you know, it, it, we could go on and on, but there, there are lots of issues to be aware of. And, and that's why, uh, you know, employers can, you know, reject or, you know, deny an employee's request to work remotely. Uh, you know, it's, I, I can think of an example, Brian, where an employee, uh, they uh, had to work remotely uh, during the pandemic. They, I mean, pretty innocently assumed that that meant they could work virtually anywhere. They literally relocated without telling the employer. They moved to a state that would have then required that employer, that company to file sales tax in, in the state because the state law there read that uh, if you have employees here, you must pay sales tax uh, on revenues generated from customers who ha you have in the state. So this co company had customers in that state, but not employees. And the tax bill that resulted literally was about as much as they were paying that employee. Um, so, so there are really good business reasons to say no. It doesn't mean you're just not with it and with the modern times and, and saying no to virtual work. Uh, there's real, you know, meaty uh, consequences to, to some of these decisions, and it may be reasonable to say no, right? Yeah, absolutely. And look, there's a difference between, you know, permitting remote work versus permitting remote work from anywhere. Uh, and, and that's what an employer needs to consider, because, you know, a lot of small and mid-sized companies are not equipped to, you know, uh, have, you know, multi-state, you know, compliance you know, they're, they're set in one location. Maybe they have services and sales in a couple of states. So they know how to deal with, you know, tax and possibly wage and hour uh, implications in those other states. Uh, but, you know, remote employees going outside of, you know, that that zone uh, can present problems. So, uh, you know, there should be a process. You know, I, I think this is a you know, something five years ago, we would have never, you know, considered this in a handbook, but, you know, there should be a process for, uh, you know, both requesting to work, you know, remotely outside of the jurisdiction and the procedure for how the company handles it, right? You know, this isn't something that we want, you know, managers making uh, decisions on and approving requests without, you know, talking to uh, HR or, you know, going higher up the line because, you know, that that risk, you know, inconsistent uh, decisions. And, you know, when we have, you know, pol you know, when we have the granting or denial of uh, remote work requests uh, happening, you know, in inconsistent bases, then, you know, that could risk even a discrimination claim, right? That, you know, my request for, uh, you know, remote work in a different state was denied when you know someone else who's not in my protected category was granted that. So, uh, you know, companies need to keep that in mind too. That you know, while they're making all these decisions and setting these policies, that you know, it needs to also be applied consistently. And again, as, as we always say in discrimination, uh, you know, uh, issues, right? You're relying on you know business-related legitimate factors in approving or denying you know these remote work. So uh, no surprise, the number one solution to almost all problems is communication, right? It's communication in the uh, uh, recruiting process uh, and sharing your policies. It's uh, communication in the onboarding process. 
It's communication of having an employee handbook and having the right policies in the first place. Uh, communication is, is at the center, and then it's doing your homework in these geographies you choose to do businesses. And I say geographies, not just states, because laws are different in New York City than they are in New York State, right? Uh, there are school district taxation uh, issues uh, all over Pennsylvania uh, that <laughs> one one township from the next may be different, right? So, uh, Brian, maybe one last topic here before we, we move on uh, to, to compensated time uh, is this kind of trend for RV uh, workers, RV employees. I, I know in a personal experience, I had a 1099 employee uh, in a company I owned uh, uh, several years ago um, that was kind of at the early days of, of this world. Uh, uh, and he, he he was awesome. He did his work literally from RV. He went from national park to national park and, and uh, never missed a beat on deliverables. But it was a 1099 relationship. I didn't bat an eyelash. I actually had to decline uh, a, a great marketing candidate. I loved her. Um, super talented, uh, but she wanted to live the RV life and couldn't commit to uh, amount of time in certain locations that would make her employment predictable. Uh, uh, but it was it was, it was going to be a W two relationship because we were going to dictate the work to her, um, it, and and so it wasn't a fit. This is an this is a real trend that's that's growing. Can you speak to that, please? Yeah. So uh, absolutely, and this can present even you know, more compliance uh, headaches than you know a remote employee who's you know in a different state and maybe employee friendly, uh, but you know in one set location because here with with someone. You know, traveling around, uh, going from uh, you know state to state and you know city to city, jur you know jurisdictions even within those, right? They, they could be triggering all sorts of uh, you know compliance requirements uh, that you know an employer might very well, you know, most employers would not be equipped to uh, keep up with. And so, you know, in this circumstance, um, you know, it, it's absolutely fine to say to say no and. Uh, I think, like you said, a lot of this starts with, you know, an offer, right? You know, that these issues, you know, should be addressed. The expectations of where employees should be working, you know, should start from the, the very beginning that, you know, an offer letter should say, you know, you're expected to work from, you know, like you said, St. Louis. And, you know, that's that's where your job will be. Um, and, you know, you're not, you know, maybe there you put in explicit language nowadays because of, you know, th this risk uh, that you're not authorized to work anywhere else. And then, you know, if they uh, accept that offer, you know, they're subject to those terms and, you know, you likely have a handbook that would, you know, let them make a request. Uh, but again, uh, it's, it's absolutely fine to tell these employees, no, you can't do this. Uh, you know, I, I think a lot of employers want to, you know, accommodate their employees. I'm not talking about a disability accommodation, just, you know, in general, you know, keep them happy. But, um, you know, there there are, you know, repercussions to that, you know, from you know, wage and hour through tax, through you know, all sorts of other aspects of the employment relationship. Uh, and as an employer, you don't want to be taking on, uh, you know, these unknown risks uh, just so that, you know, the, the employee can have this freedom to travel the country. You know that might right. might not be something that's that's going to work for your company. Brian, let's talk a little bit about compensated time. What what what, what, is, what does the topic even mean, and what should employers understand here? 
Sure. So when we're talking about you know compensated time, it's really uh, look. You know, employees should be paid for all hours uh, they're permitted to they, they work, and you know that might that can even include hours that you know they're not instructed to work, but that they work anyway. Uh, so you know, even under normal conditions, you know, for non-exempt employees who are working at uh, the business location, you know, there are enough uh, uh, you know pitfalls uh, in this area, but for uh, you know, employees working remotely, uh, it just exacerbates these issues, right? Um, there's really a heightened risk here that employees will perform what we call off-the-clock work, uh, which means they're working and they're uh, not reporting that time or it's not being captured by the company's, you know, timekeeping systems, and they're not getting paid for that. It might be time worked under 40 hours, uh, so they need to be paid at least minimum wage for that, or it might be, you know, overtime hours and you really have, uh, you know, an overtime compliance issue. Um, you know, so, you know, and there, there are really all sorts of ways, you know, this can, uh, this can arise. I, I see, I mean, I would tell you in, in my litigation experience, I do a lot of wage and hour uh, defense work, uh, off the clock claims are by far the most common claim I see. Uh, and so, you know, sometimes this might be caused by just a complete failure to track time. Hopefully no one listening to uh, the, this is in that category. You at least have some uh, procedure for, uh, you know, contemporaneously tracking employee time. Uh, but then even when, when there is a tracking of time, it's like we also have issues of, um, you know, an employee clocks out and they continue to work or, uh, you know, they're, they're, you know, not reporting that time because, you know, they know it won't look good because their manager said, you know, we need you to get this done in X number of hours or, you know, you can't work overtime. So, you know, there are many ways that if with the company's knowledge or even without it, that employees might work, uh, you know, time that is not being captured and not being paid. Uh, so again, the, the first step here is to have a policy, a written policy requiring employees to track their time and obviously having that, that way to track. And you know, just as a quick aside, you know, there's no set way under you know, federal or state laws as to how to track time. Uh, it can be you know, the old fashioned you know, punch card, it can be you know, a fingerprint scanner you know, or anything in between, uh, but it needs to be contemporaneous and accurate. Uh, so, you know, employee, you know, and it should be the employee's involvement, right? I, you know, I often have, you know, clients where, you know, we have a manager who's tracking everyone's time. Well, that might not even, that's probably not even realistic in the remote world. Uh, so we want employees to have involvement in, you know, entering that time. Uh, and look, you know, companies, especially with remote workers should audit this. You know, if you're paying an employee for, you know, a nine to five job, but they are sending out emails before nine or after five, you as a company, you have constructive knowledge that they are performing work that they're not getting paid for. Uh, so, what you know. The, what about the flip side of that, Brian? I, I mean, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm outing myself here. I, I, I mean, I know I've got uh, non-exempt employees probably pretty guilty of sending some emails or some teams chat messages uh uh before 8 a.m and after 5 p.m 
uh, try really hard not to do it on the weekends, but um, there, there's, this isn't just employees sending email. If you, what, what's, what's the burden on the employer for sending messages? Cause I would think there's this implied pressure from the employee, like they need to respond to their boss. Yeah. Uh, and that's where I think training managers and, you know, other, and, you know, the higher ups within the company about, you know, how to, how we treat non-exempt employees and what their schedules are. I mean, for instance, it's very easy if you want to say, you know, if it's, you know, and I do this too, it might be midnight and I'm sending an email uh, and I might just hit the delay delivery until 9 a.m. the next morning so that they're not getting that email in off out, you know, in outside of normal work hours and feeling compelled to respond. Um, look, there, there are even more uh, uh, ways to handle that. Uh, you, you could even cut off, you know, non-exempt employees access uh, to certain things you know, outside of their normal work schedule. That that might not always be feasible, but that's probably uh, something that can be considered. Uh, but yeah, you know, from the employer, you don't want to- think about guidance even for myself. What, what Would it be reasonable to say, hey, if, as long as you have good documentation that you've trained your employees that, hey, you might occasionally get some email that you're a member of a group thread, like uh, all sales. This might go to a hundred people uh, and you might be in that group you are not obligated to read or consume, act upon, or respond to the, those emails outside of business hours, even if you do receive it. Is that is that a reasonable? I don't know if it's a workaround, but just way way to address something like that as long as you're documenting it and training on that. Yeah, exactly. You want to document that, and then look. You know, we're going to you're going to have employees that don't follow that guidance and might read those and might you know send things. And then what you need, what companies need to do is Number one, even if an employee works, you know, some, you know, unauthorized time or unauthorized overtime, you're paying them for that time. But you can discipline them, right? You can bring them in and say, "Look, why is this happening? You know, we can't have this happening. You're getting a warning. You can, you know, uh, employers often don't understand that, you know, this puts them at risk. You know, th this type of off-the-clock work, and therefore you can discipline. You can terminate employees." Who are you know refusing to follow company guidelines because in the end you know they could intentionally do this they could be creating a claim and then they can sue you for that and you can say I told them a hundred times they couldn't do this yet they still you know continue to work after hours that that won't matter if they worked it they're getting paid so sometimes if you have employees who just you know refuse to follow policy you know progressive discipline you know is, is the way to go to ensure that you know your company is not at risk of you know a, a lawsuit or a dol audit in, in this regard yeah and I, and I would just go back i i, I want to give specific guidance brian to, to employers here this is so hard because you, you if you're trying to create a culture of achievement and excellence uh, uh, in in high standards, high performance, um, man, you hate to you hate to pull back the reins on an employee who's trying to go above and beyond and work harder and do more, right? Um, not in a, not in an unhealthy way, but just to be a high performer. Um, but uh, to me, the the key guidance here is you got to understand the law and you can't have policies that usurp the law uh, in, in the more transparent you can be uh, with good documentation and training and conversations and communication with your employees so that they understand the reasons why you have to do the things you do. Uh, 
you're likely to not undermine that culture you're trying to create. Um, but if you're trying to create that culture and then you come at, uh, if you didn't do the training, didn't do the communication up front as to the reasons why, uh, then it can feel counterculture if you come kind of kind of nip that in the bud and have to take disciplinary action. And any yeah. any other guidance you would give to growing companies? Yeah, I, I think the only thing in following up on what you said is that, right, and sometimes it will be okay for them to work outside uh, of the normal workday. And we might acknowledge that even when not given permission, they might do that anyway. So you also wanna make sure there's a written policy and procedure for these non-exempt employees to report anytime. Uh, work, yeah. whether it's putting it on their timesheets or you know emailing HR, that there should be some procedure so that you know in the event you're defending a lawsuit, you know uh, uh, on this area, you know you would at least be able to establish the company did everything it could to try to you know capture all the hours that that were worked, and it couldn't, it had no constructive or actual knowledge that you know this employee was you know violating its policy. Yeah. Brian, let's take our last topic around tax compliance. How how should be how aside from just simply doing the research and knowing what what the local tax laws are, and I say local, not state, uh, could be one of the same, but right. local tax uh, laws are. Uh, what, what what's your guidance for employees here? Sure, sure. So when we talk about you know, uh, I, we kind of have to break it down between different types of taxes. So I guess you know when we're talking about you know state unemployment taxes. Uh, there's actually federal law in this area that created a uh, standardized test uh, applicable to all states uh, to determine, you know, which should receive unemployment insurance taxes and, you know, those associated uh, wage reports. Uh, you know, the, what essentially here when it comes to unemployment, uh, these wage and tax reports and, and taxes are going to go to just one state, even if the employee splits their time uh, between two or more states. Uh, so the, the test here is really a hierarchy. Um, there, there's a first question. If you get an answer there, that ends it. And, you know, you keep going down until you get an answer. So, uh, you know, the first question is, you know, whether the services provided by this employee are localized within a certain state. Um, and if there are services outside of that state, are they just you know, incidental to those, uh, to those other services? Um, if this gives you your answer as to you know, the, which state that is where um, you know, the services are localized, the, the inquiry ends there with respect to unemployment taxes. Um, but if the service is not really localized in just one state, uh, then we go down to you know, the, the next three factors, which the first one that, that we'd ask is, you know, where's the, the base of operations? Uh, if that doesn't give us our answer, then we're talking about, you know, the place from which the services are directed or controlled. And if that doesn't give us our answer, then it's simply the employee's state of residence. Uh, so again, that's gonna be the test that you look at for unemployment insurance taxes and reports, uh, no matter what, what state you're in. It's uh, federal, federally mandated, and it's standardized. Um, then, then we get into other types of taxes, like, such as you know withholding you know, state and local payroll taxes. Um, you know, I, I'm sure you know, Shore is probably you know, well equipped to, to uh, you know uh, answer questions on this, but uh, you know I'll, I'll give it my, uh, my my best shot and, and give some overview. But uh, you know, certainly employees who are telecommuting uh, uh, in different states, 
uh, can create a uh, what we call a nexus uh, in in a different state, uh, which would then potentially obligate the uh, the employer that will say resides in another state uh, to withhold state and payroll taxes uh, in, in that new state. Um, so there are many states that have said. I, I think they're actually. Uh, you know, 36 or maybe even 37 states that have said that having just one employee uh, telecommuting uh, from that state will create a sufficient nexus between the employer and that state. Um, and that may be, you know, again, uh, that, that might be for payroll taxes, but that could be for a whole other you know, set of issues, such as uh, exposing the company to um, you know, sales tax, you know, corporate corporate income tax, franchise yeah. taxes in those other states where you know that one employee can give them a nexus uh, to. Um, yeah, I'll I'll toot our horn for two seconds. That this yeah. is a strength for us, Brian. That a lot of times, uh, one of the very common reasons uh, customers come to Assure is because they've outgrown their small business payroll uh, platform. Uh, in multi-state taxation uh, is one of the top reasons that, that those some of those other platforms can't handle. So, uh, and, and I love that you're going to, to beyond just, this is beyond just state employee income tax. This is beyond state employer uh, uh, payroll tax, right? There are, there are franchising filings. There are uh, this nexus, uh, uh, which might require you to uh, pay state sales tax that could be as much or more than you actually pay the employee in some cases, depending on your on your customer makeup and the and the taxable revenue of, uh, of that mix. So really, really, really big potential unforeseen consequences of not getting the tax thing right. Any, anything else you'd want to add before we wrap? Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's why, I, I mean, you know, this is something that you know. Again, right? Your your payroll, your local payroll company that that just operates in one state, likely unequipped to, to handle this because you know every state has their own uh, provisions for handling that you know tax nexus. Um, you know whether it's for remote employees or otherwise. Uh, and so, right? You know, having someone that understands the you know what those rules are, the implications. Um, and again, right, this could even go so far as now you now your company needs to register to do business in another state. You know, there's there's a lot of stuff going on here that, you know, even an employer just researching this on their own uh, is likely going to, you know, leave some, uh, you know, some some holes, uh, some gaps uh, in, in compliance. So real important to get guidance on this area. Yeah. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm going to close this there. Uh, it, so thank everybody for joining. This is exactly what Assure does. So clearly we are a payroll processing tax filing company, but also uh, provide HR services. So most small and mid-sized companies can't afford the 90, $110,000, $115,000 SHRM certified HR professional that knows all of this stuff, just like Brian knows off the top of his head um, to keep you in compliance. Uh, and so most entrepreneurs are white knuckling it uh, as the HR legislation gets more and more complex as the tax laws uh, in jur changing jurisdictions become more and more complex it's almost impossible to keep up with so uh, Assure provides HR services compliance as a service on a fractional basis 
So whether you want just uh, uh, help producing the handbooks that we've discussed in today's call to make sure that you have uh, uh, compliant policies uh, and support your managers, or you want more proactive strategic help for your managers in developing a culture, uh, in uh, recruiting and developing and retaining talent, or you need HR support for your entire team, we, we can help you uh, at whatever level that, uh, that your business needs. Brian, wanna just take 20 seconds here and talk about Jackson Lewis and how you guys help customers? Yeah, absolutely. So again, you know, Jackson Lewis, we're uh, an employ labor employment management side firm. We represent companies. Uh, and look, I think just like uh, Assure, uh, you know, Jackson Lewis has a, you know, a national footprint, right? We have uh, offices, uh, 60 offices throughout the U.S. So with issues like this, uh, uh, you know, issues in various jurisdictions, you know, we're, we're certainly, you know, well equipped, uh, equipped uh, to assist employers, just like Assure. All right. Well, Brian, as, uh, as always, enjoy our conversations and to everyone else, if there's any way we can help with HR compliance as a service or software and services around payroll, tax filing, human resources, time and attendance to track all these wage and, labor, uh, wage and hour issues, uh, uh, let us know and we, we'd love to help. Until next week, Brian, thanks for our conversation and thanks for, to everyone for joining us today. Thanks again.